Hey, good evening, Revolution. How's everybody doing tonight? <laughs> that seems fitting and appropriate. Um, my name is Justin Clark, and I'm part of the leadership team here at Revolution. So if you've never been here before, welcome. We're excited to have you. Um, if you've been with us um, for some time, you know that we're currently meeting here in the chapel at Christ Community Church as we prepare um, a space here in the building for a more permanent home for us. So thank you all for your patience. Um, this is not the most ideal setup, but um, God is awesome and faithful in the sense that he doesn't really care that if we meet here in the parking lot or in somebody's house, um, that this group of people who come together, we are his church, and um, that he's going he's gonna to dwell with us, he's going to be here, and um, we're excited to just work through the book of First John um, and really talk about what does it mean to be a believer, how do you know you're a believer, and tonight Pastor Matt's going to talk about um, transparency in your life, confession, um, this might sting each of us a little bit tonight, um, so please don't take that personally, but we're just going to be faithful to the Word and open it up and see what it teaches us. So um, again, the only real announcement that I have right now is if you have some free time this summer um, and, and you want to help us out, if it's a day or a week, um, please see me or Matt or Ryan afterwards because we're um, just about ready to turn loose on quite a bit of work in the gymnasium here at this building, and we will be able to use some hands, um, some able-bodied folks. So if you're willing to do that, let us know, and we'll try to plug in as quickly um, as we can to do that. And then on a, on a sad note, there is something I want to share with you guys. We're going to pray for some folks who, um, who aren't necessarily part of our church family here directly, but are, are closely um, tied to some folks who are in our church family. And um, there's a couple who, they both work at the Port City Pub and Cafe. Um, um, his name is Isaac, and her name is Astra, and um, they, their one-month-old baby passed away this week. So... Um, so we, a lot of us here um, know them. We, we go there a lot. We've had a lot of our meetings as far as the leadership team and things at that restaurant. Um, we have folks here who work there, folks who are good friends with them. Very unexpected, obviously. And so um, we're just going gonna to have a moment here where we give you all a chance to pray quietly to yourselves. And I'm going to lift them up um, and their family because it's obviously a time they're really struggling with. So if you guys just bow your heads and I'll get going here in just a second. Dear Father, we... We come before you and we know that you, you are completely in control of everything that goes on, that everything that happens in our lives happens for your glory and your will and your purpose. And Lord, there are these things that are beyond our capacity as your creation to understand why you would see fit for something like this to happen. Um, but we just pray right now, we, li we lift up Astra and Isaac and their family and their friends as they are just dealing with an unbearable pain. And we just pray that people who know them, who have a relationship with them, will just comfort them, that we as a church, if maybe we don't even know them, we can pray for them, and those of us who do, we can just, we can be there for them, we can comfort them, we can love them in the way that you love us, so that they see that, God, that you have a purpose and a plan for everything that happens, that they can hopefully find some sense of comfort in that, and some sense of peace there, we just, we pray for them right now, we ask you lift them up, that you comfort them, and you help them through this tough time, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, that is somber, but how are we doing, Revolution? I know it doesn't feel like saying that after that, does it? That just stinks. Um, those are wonderful people. We love them and just keep praying for them. Um, in the meantime, we're, we're going to press on and if you will go to First John um, chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. Missed you guys uh, last week. Uh, sorry I couldn't be here. Heard Kimsey did a great job 
Um, he's on vacation this week with his family, so you can come up and be honest with me afterwards about how he did. But uh, <laughs> uh, I heard he did really well, and I'm, I'm really, really proud of him. First um, John, we're going to go to verse 9. All right, so First John 1, 9. That, if you're in the Blue Bibles, that's page what? I don't know. Three? Okay. Well, that's, oh, okay, say it again. <laughs> 743. Okay, I thought three sounded a little... Oh, early, but anyway, that's uh, um, 743. All right, so if you want to go there, um, before we get there, um, let me just, tonight, I mean, we're dealing with a topic tonight about being, trying to be really honest and being transparent, and so let me be really honest and transparent. Um, when I became a Christian in 1997 uh, is when I became a Christian. Um, I felt that I owed God my life because I'd come through a cancer scare. And so I felt, okay, God owns me, so I'm going to go do this whole Christian thing. But I didn't really want to do it. I didn't really want to do it because I didn't like the church, and I didn't like church people. And one of the things I didn't like about church people, I know that's a weird thing coming from a pastor of a church to not like the church, but I really didn't. And one of the things I didn't like about the church was there was this everywhere I went, not, not just here. I'm not picking on a single church because I've lived in Ohio, I've lived in Texas, I've lived in California, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Washington, D.C. And in every single church I was in, there was this I'm perfect vibe. Now, if you ask people, are you perfect? They say, oh, of course not, I'm a sinner, blah, blah, blah. But then they acted like, but I don't sin. Right? There, there was that vibe that, you know, and we define sin as we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't cuss, we don't watch R-rated movies. Um, you know, we don't have sex with anyone but our husband or wife. And, it, 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 you know, even that we don't talk about. You know, it was that kind of vibe in the church. And I was like, you know, I'm coming out of a community of a bunch of drunken pagans where everything was on the table. Right? I mean, you could sit down with, when I was living in, like, Washington, D.C., and on, like, a Friday or Saturday night, we'd go to Georgetown and, and drink too much and be like, you know what I did this week, and da, 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 and you could just spill out like the most ridiculous, stupid, awful thing, and be like, <laughs> dude, right? You do that in church, and they're like, ah, you know, good luck with all of that. We're going to go over here with the perfect people and leave you here, and that's what it felt like. And, I, you know, so I didn't want to be a part of the church crowd. And the weird thing was, even when I went to seminary, I went to seminary with the goal of doing a Ph.D. to teach in a seminary but not be part of a church. I'll, te- you know, I'll train pastors, but I'm not going to a church. You know what I mean? Because I don't want to have anything to do with those people. And, and that's where I came from. I could not stand that kind of atmosphere. It just drove me crazy. And even though I've learned to the hard way over the last 15, 16 years, to love church people, it still drives me crazy. i just be honest with you. It still absolutely drives me crazy when I hear people come up to me and say, right, they, ha- they haven't been in church. I'm like, where have you been? Well, you know, I've slipped back. I've been doing drugs. I've been drinking again. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. I was like, and? So? I'm like, why? You can't go to church and do that. I was like, Why? You know, that kind of, you set that kind of moral bar and only Jesus can go to church, right? I mean, are you serious? 
And it drove me nuts, and it still does. But if you look at 1 John, look at 1 John 1, 9. We're just doing this one verse tonight. Okay, now look at this. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we confess our sins to him. Now, I want to a couple things here real quick. One, that word confess is actually very close to the Hebrew word for praise and worship. One. Two, if you run through the New Testament, what you find is, is that John says you cannot get any forgiveness unless you confess your sins to God and to one another. James says you cannot be healed unless you confess your sins. Matthew says that confession of sins is an absolute prerequisite for becoming a Christian at all. Acts puts this big, like Luke in, in, the, in the book of Acts puts this heavy emphasis on confessing your sins in public. Now, there's a cultural thing there to be sure. But could you imagine if we had a church service like they had in Acts where people were just standing up and like, you know, anybody got something to confess? I'm addicted to porn. <laughs> right? Could you imagine the typical church people, what they do? I mean, after their head exploded, right, all over the hymnals? It, it would just blow people's mind. I mean, it's just, and yet, this is what the Bible is saying. We believe, we go to these churches that say the Bible is the word of God. God actually said, these are the books I want you to have. We read them and say, well, it can't really mean that. Which means, are you a biblical church? Right? Why would God say, in order to be a Christian, in order to get healing, in order to worship, in order to have forgiveness, in order to have community, you have to confess the most humiliating failures in your life to other people. Why? Why do that? I had, um, when I was in seminary, I had a really tough time in seminary, too, because I just didn't get it. I told you guys, what was it about, maybe a month ago. I remember my first week in seminary, and sitting around with this group of guys, pastors in training. And I, you know, they've all been Christians like since they were a fetus. And, you know, I've been a Christian for like a week. And, and we're all sitting around there and, and they're all like talking about how they came to Christ. And like some of them are like, I went through a period where I cussed a lot. And I'm like, I've been doing that since age eight. What are you talking about? I mean, it was like, that's the prerequisite to when I started sinning. I mean, come on. That's how I describe my sins is with profanity. Um, so... <laughs> And, yeah, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And so then when it came around to me and I started to describe my life, it's like I ran away when I was 15. I ran off to Hollywood when I was 17. I started doing drugs when I was 18. I mean, they were trying to mask their, like, disgust, right? But, I mean, it was, it was pretty much like, don't touch it, right? <laughs> It'll burn you. <laughs> and I, I went through that, and it was, it was bizarre to me, but... I had one professor in seminary who, because he'd been a pastor for like 30 years, he'd seen it all, he'd heard it all, nothing shocked him anymore. And he told me once, because he would meet with me about once a week, and 
he, he, he believed in me, but he was worried about me. And he would pull me aside, a guy named Charlie Seibert, Chainsaw Charlie, they called him, because he was like six foot five, had a voice like an octave deeper than God, and, and yet he was like the sweetest guy on the face of the planet. And so he would sit there, and he'd take me aside, and, and he'd talk to me, and I'd be like, and ever, whenever he would catch me, like going, well, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that, he'd just stop me and go, Matt, reality is your friend. Right? He'd back me up, just, let's, let's be honest here. We, we need to get to reality before we can deal with anything else. And reality is your friend. And he just pounded that in my every week that would come by. I was, um, I told you, I ran away from home when I was 15, and I, I stayed with this buddy of mine on a couch in Wheelersburg until I was 16, and then I ran off to Hollywood because I wanted to be a film director, and I was in Hollywood for a couple years. Um, and I got to Hollywood right at the end of the whole hair metal thing. And I actually worked in the 9000 building on the Sunset Strip, which was right across the street from the Rainbow. Now, if you don't know anything about heavy metal, the Rainbow is like the bar and grill that, like, Led Zeppelin made famous. It's where, like, Lemmy from Motorhead, like, lives. I mean, it's just every, every rocker goes there. And so I was up on, like, the ninth floor of, of you know, that building, the 9,000 building. I would look down on the rainbow every day, and I would see, like, I remember watching a limo pull up in front of the rainbow. I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And so I'd look out under it, and somebody literally collapsed onto the sidewalk and crawled into the rainbow bar and grill. And I'm watching them crawl across the sidewalk. I'm like, I'm way up there. It's like, I got to see who this is. So I go, my brother had some binoculars. And I was like, Damn it, don't ask me why. And so I went and I grabbed the binoculars. And I was like, I'm looking at it. It was Ozzy Osbourne literally crawling into the rainbow at like three o'clock in the afternoon, you know? And it was that era, right? And he still had like hair up to here, right? It wasn't like black and pink and he wasn't trying to look like emo at that point. He was like up to here and like dyed blonde. And it was that era, right? Okay, so you'd walk around town, and you'd see, like, Nikki Six drive by in a Corvette at 300 miles an hour and all that kind of you, that It was that era. And it was, but it was dying, right? Because you would go to, like, Gazzari's, or you would go to, like, the Cat House or something like that. And I had a fake ID. And I'd go, and, and you know, I would go, and I would go to these places. And I remember going to the Cat House one night. And the Cat House was owned by a guy named Ricky Rockman, if you remember Headbangers Ball. He owned it, and he was always there, and he was always drunk. And you would go in, and you would sit there, and they would have just band after band. They were always hair metal bands. And they, by, like, the spring of 90, I, I had noticed, they all sounded the same. I mean, they all sounded the same. They all sounded the exact same. And even I was, was getting tired of it. And I was like, I'd sit there and like, this is just boring. I mean, oh, my gosh, you know. And then, it was like in the summer of 1990, I didn't have that many friends who were into metal at my school. There was just one guy named Greg Mack, G-Mack. And I was, I was with G-Mack. It was 1990. And so, we're, you know, and so we're driving, and he puts in this band I'd never heard of, and he starts cranking it up, and it starts with this, this sound that I'd never heard. It was a da 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 And I was like, what is it? It was, it was Pantera's Cowboys from Hell. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. What is this? This is a band from Texas called Pantera. And we listened to that whole album you know, driving down to San Diego, and I was like, oh, this is amazing, and, you know, I went out and got the album, and I was really into it, because hair metal was dying, it was dead, it just sounded terrible, but this stuff sounded so original and cool, 
And I was into Pantera, but then I read an interview with their guitar player who died just a few years ago, unfortunately, in Columbus. He was shot to death, if you remember this. Steinbeck Darrell was shot in Columbus one night by a craze, just a nutbag. And Dimebag was talking about, this is 1991-92, and I'm reading this interview. And this, at this point, Pantera is like being called like the saviors of metal. Because everyone else just sounded like they were just, it just sounded processed and overproduced and all this other kind of stuff. But Pantera sounded really original and really good. And at this time, because most of you are way too young, so let me take you back in a DeLorean back to 1992 and, 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 and outline what was going on. At that time, MTV had refused to play hair metal, probably a good idea. They had stopped doing that, and they were like playing. It was one of two things. It was either hip-hop or it was grunge. It, was, it would go back and forth. through like Soundgarden, Ice Cube, Alice in Chains, you know. It was that kind of thing just over and over and over again. Every once in a while you get Mariah Carey, which is when I'd go get something to drink. And so, um, and it was this over and over and over again. But Pantera stood out, and Pantera was like, it like survived the whole grunge thing and everything else, when, and it just sounded so different. So I'm reading this interview with Dimebag Daryl, and I'm, like, expecting, like, the normal kind of metal response at that time in 92, which is like, oh, thank God, Poison, I've got to go get a real job. And, and now, you know, music's actually going to take off. And Dimebag Darrow, I'm reading this interview, he goes, I love Poison. And I'm like, oh, he's being sarcastic. He goes, I played with them last week. I was like, no, you didn't. You're a liar. Right? The savior of real metal did not get on stage and play Talk Dirty to me. He did not. That did not happen. It did. He loved poison. And I was like, who says that in 1992? That's just like standing up and saying, please don't listen to me. Please throw rocks at me. I'm so uncool. Just, I mean, that's, that's what that is. To stand up and admit that in 1992 was like, who are you? And he'd be like, oh, I loved hair metal. I loved Motley Crue. I loved Skid Row. I loved all this kind of stuff. And I also loved Metallica, and I loved this, and I loved that. And I was like, because back then it was either you loved, like, thrash metal or you loved hair metal, and they hated each other. The two absolutely hated each other. If you go back and watch Metallica's, yes, this is a sermon. Just stay with me. If you go back and you watch, <laughs> you go back and you watch Metallica's video, Nothing Else Matters. Anybody know that song? Okay, Metallica's Nothing Else Matters. You can actually watch Lars Ulrich throwing darts at a pictures of Kip Winger. He's just sitting there, and he's throwing, which is like the, the prettiest hair metal guy of the day. He's throwing darts at him, right? And they've got this on video. I mean, they didn't try to hide it. I mean, it was like highlighted, you know. And then, of course, if you watched Beavis and Butthead, I mean, the big thing was the nerdy kid wore the winger shirt. And that was, you know, because everybody hated hair metal. And here's a guy dying back there going, I love hair. My brother loves hair. We love it. And I'm like, this is bizarre. Who says this? And then over the years, what I learned was, and this is why I said on Facebook today, this is the subtitle of the sermon, is the gospel according to Pantera, was they didn't care. What I so loved about Dimebag Daryl and Vinnie Paul and all this, they didn't care what anybody thought. They're just like, we love this, we don't care if it's cool or not, and we love this, and we don't care if it's cool or not, and we're going to do what we want to do. And if you like it, great, and if you don't, who cares? And no one else was that way. They just didn't care whether you liked it or not. And I loved that because for me at the time, especially because I had gone from working in Hollywood, I left Hollywood in 1991, and I came back here and I started working in politics. 
which is the only thing faker than Hollywood. And so I'm in politics, and I had to cut my hair and put on a tie and all the other kind of stuff. And I, I remember, I mean, I told somebody this week, I, I remember distinctly, like, pulling up to, like, present my candidate's views at a Christian coalition meeting. And I pull up, and I'm smoking a cigarette and listening to Sepultura's Roots Bloody Roots on the stereo so loud that it's like shaking my car. And I pull in, and I, and I thought I got there late, but the chairman was standing outside, and he was just looking at me like, somebody get me holy water. Yeah. I hated that. I hated that having to, like, pretend, right, to pretend to be a certain way. I just wanted to walk up in front of this group in my Pantera shirt and a cigarette and be like, hey, I'm with you. <laughs> and then be like, great, instead of, ah, right? I, I didn't understand that. I didn't understand why I had to dress a certain way, look a certain way, talk a certain way in order to, like, join that group. I did not get that at all. And then what was even worse is I become a Christian. And in churches, it's even worse. You've really got to dress a certain way and talk a certain way and be a certain way or else. And I hated that. I hated that so much. And I was like, okay, I get that there is this thing called sin. I get that. I get that there is this thing where you're rebelling against God. God says, here's right, here's wrong. And you're saying, nope, I know better than you. And I'm going to go and do what I want to do. And that's sin. Sin is telling God, I know better than you. I'm going to do what I want to do. I got that. But I was like, how is like listening to Black Sabbath sin? Because I've, I've actually read the lyrics. Most people haven't, right? Most people, it, most people in most metal songs can only give you one line from the chorus, right? Crazy train. And that's all they know. (laughs) That's all they know. They know nothing else, which I was telling Jackson and my son and I were driving around and we were listening to crazy train because that's what I do as a pastor on a Sunday with my son. And so, and we're listening to that. And I told him, I stopped it. And I said, Jackson, do you understand what this song is about? And he goes, no, but it's awesome. I said, yes, but (laughs) I said, the song is actually about world peace. Did you ever know that? If you read the lyrics, crazy train by Ozzy Osbourne is about world peace. It's about, it does not make any sense for countries to constantly be at war. That's a crazy trend. That's what the song is about. Most of Black Sabbath songs are hippie songs. They're, they're, they're peace love songs. And yet people are like, oh, they're evil. Like, Have you read them? They're like hymns, for goodness sakes. Seriously? Read them. They're, they're not bad. It's the same thing. It was like, I remember having a copy of Iron Man's Number of the Beast, and people were like, oh, that's evil. I said, have you read the lyrics of the song? It's not saying it's a good thing. It's saying it's a bad thing. It's, it's, it's actually, heck, it's more anti-devil than Jerry Falwell. Have you read the lyrics? Give me a break. But people don't read the lyrics, right? They just see the imagery, and they assume. The biggest thing was this. This has happened a few years ago. I'm a big fan of the band Demon Hunter. Now, as this whole front row knows, Demon Hunter is a Christian band, correct? They're all Christians. They're all devout Christians. In fact, the lead singer is a graphic artist who refused, was asked by Cradle of Filth, a band, to do a cover for their album. He said, no, I'm a Christian. I don't think that would work. He's a Christian. And people, when I started wearing Demon Hunter shirts, were like, you shouldn't wear a shirt with Demon on it. 
like, you realize it's Demon Hunter. They're hunting demons. It's a Christian band. It says demon on it. (laughs) I said the book of James has demon in it, so what? (laughs) But we just jumped to this conclusion. It drove me crazy. My point is this. If it does not lead you to sin, it's not a sin. If it doesn't tempt you to sin, what's the problem? Right? Who cares? And so I felt like I had to, had to like give up everything that I loved, even if it wasn't a sin, to join a place that's supposed to be ministering to people who sin? I, I didn't get it. I still don't get it. And here's why I think John says this, okay? That you have to confess your sins. Because I think that despite the culture that we see in all these churches, that Christianity at its heart, that first and foremost, it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died in your place for your sins, that he lived a perfect life to actually grant that life to you so you'll be judged by that life when you stand before God and not your own. That's why they call it good news. And right around that is this. When you confess your sins, when you confess your failures, it's about actually being authentic. It's about being real. It's about saying, here's who I am. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's an incredibly unhealthy thing for people to pretend to be something they're not if that something is not anything in rebellion against God. I I don't get that. And so I think confession of sins is, is, is partially about that. It's about honing down and saying, here's who I am. Here are my failures. Because you cannot admit who you are or get to who you are. And a lot of people don't even know who they are because they're so pulled by this group and that group and this culture and that culture. And they're so hard, they're so trying so hard to fit into all these different cultures. They don't even know who they are. And, and in between that... God is saying, okay, forget that for a minute. Come to me and tell me, what have you screwed up? Let's talk about that first and lay that out and understand that I'm going to forgive you and love you no matter what. And let's get to that and let's clear all that away so we can start to drill down on who you really are. Because if you are fake here, you will eventually fall into crisis out there. That will happen. If you have a problem, and I am so grateful that when I sit down with people for discipleship hours, and I sit down with a lot of people, and I sit down, and I say, what's going on? And they just tell me, I've got this problem, I've got this problem, I wrestle with this, I can't do this. And they're not embarrassed to tell me about that. Because the one good thing we've done at Revolution, and we screwed up a lot. You don't need to comment. (laughs) But the one, I think, one good thing that we've actually done is we, when you ask people about revolution, what is it you like about revolution? They almost always in the top three is transparency. Is that we can come there and just say, here I am, here's what I've screwed up, and there's not this. There's, yeah, I know. Been there too. And we can talk about that. We can talk about that. That's so important. When I worked on Capitol Hill... 
there was what you do when you walk in. There's the, the House of Representatives and the Senate is huge. It's a huge building, and there are statues everywhere, and there are paintings everywhere. And there's this one statue of a guy from Hawaii. And I finally got somebody to ask. I, I asked, like, one of the historians, because you pay for historians to tell people who work there what the building's about, um, your tax dollars at work. And so I asked this guy, I said, what's this about? And he said, well, this was a Catholic priest, and he went to Hawaii before it was a state, before it was even a, you know, a territory in the United States. And there's a part of Hawaii that was actually a leper colony. And he went to go minister to this leper colony. And he spent years there. Nothing. Nobody came to Christ. Nobody became a Christian. They'd listen to him and be like, nah, all right, see you next week. And they would, I mean, that was it. That was as good as much as he could get. Until one day he noticed a spot on his arm. He had contracted leprosy. And this was before today. You can go get a shot, and, but, but back then, you can't do it. He had leprosy, and he announced the congregation, I, I now am also like you. And then there was a revival. The moment he stood down, instead of saying you, and started saying we, everything changed. The moment Christians are open enough to admit their failures, are totally transparent, and can go to people who don't know Jesus Christ and say, this isn't you, this is we, I think things will change. You've got to be that transparent. You've got to be that real. Or you're not getting anywhere. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that despite the fact that I'm a whack job who's 41 years old and still listens to metal and watches horror movies and, and all that kind of stuff, and that you have still enabled me to work with people by just saying I'm a absolutely jacked up person too. And show me that that's the way this needs to work. That We just need to go to people because none of us are Jesus Christ. And in this cosmic level of things, there's Jesus and everybody else. And we're everybody else. And we may be forgiven. We may have the absolute, this, this blessing, this good news that you've taken our punishment. You have given us your life. But we've done nothing to earn that. We're not better people. We're just here. And that we need to be able to go to other people with that humility, with the confidence that we have been forgiven, we do know the truth, but with the humility that, but we're just as screwed up as you are. And we just need to be open and honest about everything that we are. We need to be people who are authentic in a culture that pushes such inauthenticity. Everywhere I've been, Hollywood, D.C., everywhere, it's always been about pretending something you're not. May your followers be people that just like, this is who we are, warts and all. And all we just want to do is to know one true love, to know truth in this world. May we do that. May we preach that. In Jesus' name, amen.